2: The most effective way to do it is to do it, is a quote from the American aviation pioneer Amelia Earhart, the first female aviator to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guests today, playing a key role in the startup ecosystem, working closely with founders, entrepreneurs, and the doers of the world. Our guests are Rachel Newman and Kylie Fraser founding partners of Flying Fox Ventures, an early-stage venture capital firm, making it easy for private investors to build their own diversified technology portfolios, supporting local startups with global aspirations. Rachel and Kylie have been across many parts of the startup ecosystem. Rachel was previously head of startups for Amazon Web Services in Australia and New Zealand and was managing director of Eventbrite in Australia and New Zealand. She's also on the Council of Trustees of the National Gallery of Victoria. Kylie was formerly an m lawyer, having worked for Cause Chambers Westgarth and Urchin Legal and Ventures before shifting her focus to startups. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners, From all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Singapore, Israel, and United States, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, Executive Search, and Board Advisory. Today, we delve into the world of startups, where Rachel and Kylie are making their mark. Having established Flying Fox Ventures, they aim to challenge the traditional venture capital model and help more people take their first steps into angel investing. They share with us the intricacies of the tech startup environment, the challenges facing founders and other players in the ecosystem, and how they see potential in the many entrepreneurs they work closely with. So sit back and enjoy Taking Flight. Rachel and Kylie, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having us.
2: Just an easy question to start with. If you had a magic wand that you could change three or four things in state or federal government, I guess, policy, tax policy, incentive policy, in relation to startups, what would they be?
0: Oh, we're just starting off nice and easy, Greg. Okay. Uh, well, listen, um, there have long been uh, moments where both Kylie and I and other members of the ecosystem wish that we had magic wands. Um, even better, we have uh, organizations like the Tech Council and previously Startup Buzz, which are groups meant to um you know bring those topics to the surface and hopefully influence politics there have been varying degrees of success but when we step back and think about what would success look like first of all i think i speak for kylie when we say we both want our kids to grow up and inherit a country that um, is a thriving economy and one that's based on the economies of the future whether that's knowledge technology etc um, and we want our kids to be able to live their best lives here and not have to go overseas so when we step back what does that mean you know we think about that through the lens of technology and startups and we think about it um, in a progression what are the things that we need so that anyone can you know with a great idea and a great identification of a customer problem can start a company what are the things that she or he needs then to attract talent or capital to that company, and then what are some of the things that she or he needs to grow and scale that company globally. So if we think about what sorts of things fall into that bucket, starting, we want folks, um, all kids to be able to see starting a business or starting a startup or building a novel piece of technology as a viable career option, Um, just as viable as um, some of the careers we were told to go into, whether that's medicine or, or legal. Um, and so we need those success stories told. We need to um, see what an exciting opportunity is, not just for founders, but for employees to join really exciting, cutting edge companies. And we need incentives to be able to bring talent to that space. Uh, we also, you know, in that talent bucket, we're still a net importer of talent. Um, so it would be great if we had some immigration policy that allowed us to get both skilled migration in that's highly specific to our sector, but also non-skilled migration. We still need services around us, whether that's childcare, you know, hospitality. We 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 need to make sure that we have the people that we need for our businesses to run. And then I, it's kind of unsexy, but there's a lot in tax policy that can be changed so that it allows people to realize uh, the rewards that can be built. Like we believe that this industry can build outsized rewards um, and there's a lot of tax incentives in other countries that allow people to take risk and allow people to enjoy and distribute those rewards a little more favorably than here. But don't get me started on policy. I can keep going.
2: No, but it's fascinating. You're talking about changing your total mindset, aren't you, in a whole culture? If you're talking about young people thinking about becoming entrepreneurs as as opposed to pursuing a career as a as a solicitor or a doctor, um, which we're all being brought up to do. That's a big shift in Australian culture.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe Kylie can speak to that as someone who went through the legal profession and has come out the other end and now is backing amazing entrepreneurs. But there's a whole mind shift that's required around our risk tolerance, around, um, you know, very quickly, I think the pendulum swung to like STEM education. And while STEM is important, it's actually about attitudinal changes, because the truth is, and you know, all the reports are saying that the jobs that our kids will have in you know 2040, 2050, those don't even exist now. So it can't be vocational based education, it has to be attitudinal shifts. So I get really excited when I think about how do we teach our kids to problem solve, to work in diverse teams, to identify customer problems, to build iteratively, to accept failure. Those are all the sorts of things that we can instill in education now, even when we don't know what are the actual jobs to be done.
2: Now, I'm talking to the two founders, aren't I, of Flying Fox? Correct. (laughs) Flying Fox Ventures. What actually is this?
1: So, Flying Fox is an early-stage venture capital firm. We help companies find their often first funding to, to help them on their path to grow global businesses. So, investing in startups. Our model is a little bit different because we really focus on helping individual investors build their own investing capacity. So we form a cohort of investors and take them on an education journey, let them really look over our shoulder and understand what it takes to invest in this asset class how to pull apart a deal, how to allocate capital, how to construct a portfolio that's tailored to their own individual investment theses. Because one of the things that's great about venture as an asset class is there's a lot of scope to do it differently. It really is a a choose your own adventure model. Everyone comes to venture for different reasons. It may be because they're looking to stay current. You know, there's no better way, in my opinion, to really keep yourself on top of emerging trends and new technology than by having some skin in the game. You know, like when you are investing in these technologies, you deeply care about them and, and you're following them along. So it is this this. Forced mechanism to keep yourself current and your knowledge up to date. A lot of people have this desire to give back, which um, you know when you've when you've come up through a career in in corporate Australia or, or professional services. Sometimes those opportunities are more limited, and being able to give your skills and experiences to the next generation is is deeply appealing to to some people. And then there is the financial incentives and early stage investing offers some that the opportunity to, to access disproportionate rewards that the, the risk to reward balance is is different from other asset classes this is high risk high reward and you know, while it's not something that you want to be overexposed to, allocating a sensible proportion of your portfolio to can, can really help drive some, some nice returns when, when done responsibly. So we love introducing people to this asset class, getting them set up on their, on their own investment journey so they can, they can figure out how they, how they best want to play.
2: And so for the mums and dads who are out there who maybe have spare capital, or have um, a reasonable amount to invest and have a portfolio already structured. What are you seeing in terms of their education and understanding of this this asset class?
0: Yeah, I, I think that um, we're starting to see people get excited about it, you know, because in the press, we're seeing more success stories about early stage startups. And so there is an acknowledgement that it's there. As Kylie said, it's hard in our day-to-day jobs to ignore the fact that there are startups that are entering our spaces or, are great uh, service providers for the corporates that we work for. And so I think that the awareness piece is emerging, but the recognition and the accessibility to be able to put money into that has been limited. And one of the Mm. things that was important to us at Flying Fox was there's no lack of capital in Australia. There's plenty of money here, but there were three structural barriers for those mom and pops that you described to be able to access this asset class. The first one is just some basic education And there are things um, that Kylie and I are involved in, whether that's teaching at the VC Catalyst program through the Wade Institute or other education, things that uh, we do through Flying Fox. There is some ground to cover in getting that confidence and competence up and just understanding, because this doesn't look like a typical share portfolio. This looks very different and the way you construct a portfolio is different. So we just need some education. But the, the second and third points that we're trying to take the barriers down from is, You know, first of all, deal flow. So this is one of those asset classes where you have to kiss a lot of frogs in order to find a prince or a princess. Kylie and I look at about a thousand companies a year in order to write 10 to 15 checks. Not everyone has the full-time capacity to do that. And so leaning on folks like us, whether that's through a syndicate or an angel group or um, a fund, we're able to deal with the volume that is required to find those great deals. And then if you're doing early stage write, which is writing lots of smaller size checks, then you want to be able to have access, but not everyone wants small checks onto the cap table. And so again, bringing your small check together with a few hundred of your friends uh, results in a big check and allows Kylie and I to be able to get into those juicy deals that otherwise the 10K or the 15K checks couldn't get onto. And so that's really what we were trying to do on the investor side is just take down those structural barriers so that, you know, the people who have money and want into this asset class and the people who are building companies and want access to that capital are able to meet in the middle. And you know, one of the stats that we know in Australia is that we just have an underfunding for early stage startups per capita. We're putting about $3 per capita into early stage startups versus $25 per capita in the U.S. And so we want this ecosystem to be up and running. We just need to get money into those early stages. And again, it's not a lack of capital that exists. It's just having them, you know, meet more beautifully. And that's uh, what we live and breathe for at Flying Fox.
2: What's your thoughts on between the $3 to the $25? How long is that going to take? And what's the, you mentioned a couple of the hurdles there and part of this education. What else could be done to excite people to make that move?
1: I think the more success stories we have, the more visibility in this space, the easier that will become. We have seen, you know, coming back to to what we spoke about at the top of this session around um, some structural reforms, particularly tax reforms. So the Australian venture capital sector really took off when the federal government introduced tax incentives to stimulate that part of the economy. Now, similar reforms happened much earlier in the U.S., so we have a while to go before you know to kind of get to the same to the same point where they are um, given that that we just started later so it's hard to put a time frame on it but one of the one of the things that is emerging is how efficient australia is at finding unicorns so there's some early research that has come out recently that shows that in the u s it has taken two hundred million dollars deployed into seed stage capital to find a unicorn, whereas in australia that 's fifty million so that 's a twenty five percent difference in in terms of of how how much more um, efficient capital is in australia and it's hard to really nail what the reasons are for that. One of those is the size of our ecosystem. You know, the fact that is it is smaller. There are some constraints, but some of those constraints work in our favour. You know, we are not searching for the needle in the, you know, literal haystack because we are fishing in a much smaller pond. That has pros and cons, of course. We are really excited by that, by that capital efficiency that we see.
0: The other thing I'll just add to that is um, one of the things that we've seen in the US that happened much earlier because it's a longer standing ecosystem is this flywheel effect and this recycling of, you know, founders or early employees who make a significant amount of money through an exit, who are then deploying that capital back as investors, as fund managers, sometimes as second time founders. And so we're getting that capital through. And we're still at the early stages where we're seeing major wealth generation through our startups. But once Mm -hmm. we, you know, we were hoping to see it with some of the Atlassian money, we didn't quite see it. But, you know, as Canva employees, for example, access those secondaries and are able to get liquid wealth out of that, we are seeing them already pop up as angel investors. Um, And I think that that flywheel spinning uh, more beautifully so as we have more exits, people with more money put it back into the ecosystem, we'll get that that uh, investment per capita number up as well.
2: Rachel Colley, what what's your backgrounds and how did you two come together?
1: Sure. Um, well, my my background. I started my career as a corporate lawyer, M um, and A, equity, capital markets. Um, I loved it, which is a deeply unsexy thing to say in in startups and technology. We're we're, we're all supposed to begrudge our um yeah you know, our our former lives, but but I learned I learned some some great skills there that have really set me up well to to kind of navigate the, this ecosystem and and keep a tight rein on on things at Flying Fox. Uh, when I left the law, I started um, a couple of companies, one mm. didn't do so well, um, and the second did did better. Um, and I found myself, uh, I, I was lucky enough to to kind of have an exit from that company and started investing off the back of that um as i was investing more and more people started asking to join me it was in the early days when there weren't really commercial syndicates in australia and and we yeah. we built one of the first and it okay. just grew super organically until we we kind of got to where we are today
2: what made you want to become an entrepreneur that's a big difference from being a lawyer
1: yeah it is look uh, the the. the I don't think I ever wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, I never really identified with that word. I just thought I was building a business. Um, it was only really in hindsight that I, I realized that I had a startup and there was, you know, this whole other ecosystem. So I, I was very much an, an accidental entrepreneur. I was lucky enough when I when I was on maternity leave. I think this is I don't want to um, sidetrack us in, into into a um, into a debate on on structural inequities between genders in Australia, but one of the great things that a person has when they take parental leave is a chunk of time to reflect and reassess. And I, you know, I I had a very high pressure. Role as a lawyer and that time off was, was just such a blessing. And I got to really reevaluate where I wanted to spend my time, um, what I wanted, you know, how I wanted to design my life, where I think I could achieve the most. And that, that, that was, that was just a, a really, really important part of my journey.
0: I have a different background, which brings some complementary skills to Kylie's um, kind of deal making and founder experience. Um, I started my career off, you know, there's a joke in Silicon Valley that everyone in VC running around is, you know, a Stanford grad and uh, with an MBA um, and from a consulting firm. And I have to kind of, (laughs) embarrassingly, I have a Stanford degree, and MBA from Columbia, and I worked at Bain for a number of years, Um, so I I do have uh, some of that pedigree. But one, I I don't want to discount my experience at Bain, especially allowed me to work with a number of different companies in several industries and very quickly have to get up to speed, very quickly have to identify what are the critical customer issues. Um, and pain points, and then what are the different models we can deploy to um, improve this? And just getting that rev allowed me to start to pattern detect, and then in the startup world, take some of those lessons learned and put them into weird and new innovative settings and see how they how they work. But after Bain, um, I went into a, a, a high growth startup in uh, San Francisco, as was a company called Eventbrite in its very early yep. days. And they were VC backed at the very beginning of their high growth journey. And it was one of those kind of, typical rocket ship rides, you know, where I wore a hoodie to work every day. We had kombucha on tap and, you know, we grew (laughs) by millions and millions of of users uh, up up until an IPO. And I was very lucky when you're on a rocket ship ride like that, you tend to have many different roles over the years. So everything from director of customer strategy, I brought that business here to Australia, ran it as managing director, grew that up, and then went back to San Francisco to kind of look at global growth and strategy. Then I. I realized there are a few things that I learned on that journey, came back to Australia and started uh, helping a few of, at that time, uh, kind of our early stage companies with those lessons learned. And those are companies that we now know to be, you know, Canva and Vend and Health Engine, some great Australian success stories. I had a stint at AWS as head of startups for A and Z there as well, which again was just an opportunity to meet thousands of companies, um, learn as much as I can, hopefully help them do what they do better whether that's using aws cloud services or just the incredible startups teams knowledge and throughout the course of this journey that i described i started to realize that i had this unfair advantage i could make money like most australians which is buy a bunch of investment properties and i've done that uh, and i certainly have made money that way but i thought you know anyone can buy an investment property in brisbane I'm seeing thousands of companies. I know what I'm looking for. I know how to unlock growth. Why am I not putting my money where my mouth is? And so the story is I started putting in very small checks. My friends from whether it's Bain or AWS said, Hey, next time you find a great company, can you tell me, can I put money alongside you? And that's when I realized to our point around Flying Fox is that there's lots of interest and money. People just don't have the structure to be able to get in. Ellie and I met at an industry dinner. It was professional love at first sight. Uh, we realized we had extremely complimentary skill sets and Flying Fox was born shortly thereafter. And the name? So uh, Flying Fox, uh, first of all, it's a fruit bat that uh, deposits seeds and it helps to germinate seeds. It's also a piece of, you know, children's play equipment. And it's the fastest way to get to, from point A to point B and have a little fun while you're doing it. So, uh, We just thought that it evoked both the stage at which we're investing, but also we try and take our work very seriously, but not ourselves too seriously. So just imagine us zipping along on a flying fox and uh, there you go.
2: You're listening to No Limitations with special guests, Rachel Newman and Kylie Fraser. In our next episode, I sit down with Michael Schneider, Managing Director of Bunnings Group.
0: And I think like a lot of People that come into leadership roles like this, you probably have a period of imposter syndrome. I you know, I'd work with some incredibly talented executives. I'd work for uh, incredibly talented executives, and you know, those those big shoes to fill syndrome absolutely kicks in.
2: Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now back to the show, Rachel. What do you see in the difference in mindsets between the Americans and the Australians in business, in the sense of having breaking off the entrepreneurial flair, taking risk and in investment, and for taking failure. part of the stride
0: yeah if you had asked me this a decade ago when i first arrived in australia i would have had a very different answer and so it's so pleasing for me to see that that has changed quite a bit i think that the appetite for risk the acknowledgement that there are high risk high reward opportunities the uh willingness for really smart people to jump outside the cushy corporate comfort zone and have a crack like all of that has just improved hand over fist in the decade plus that I've been here. I would say the one place where we want to continue to improve is just understanding what global ambition looks and feels like. I think that we have a bit of a tyranny of size in Australia where some people are confused into thinking, oh, this market is big enough. When, you know, VCs, we're looking for people to unlock global markets. And so we're looking for folks who are thinking global from day one. They're building that into their understanding of the customer problem. They're building that into their infrastructure. They're building that into their talent plan, into their go-to-market. And ironically we see companies in New Zealand sometimes or Israel can do that a bit better because they're under no illusion that their country is big enough to start with right away they're exporting and so I would just love to see Australian entrepreneurs continue to think globally from day one and to set their ambition as not being the number one ex-company in Australia but the number one ex-company in the world that does what they do.
1: I think if I can just um just jump in on that too I think there's a way to go in how corporate Australia deals with the the innovation and and technology sector um, as distinct from from enterprise in the US. It's much harder to get an Australian corporate to be a customer than a U.S. customer. Quite often a startup has to go to the U.S. to get its first, you know, blue-chip customers and then come back to Australia to to build the business here. Now, that's great, you know, from the entrepreneurs, you know, thinking global and, and getting super ambitious from day one. But I, I really think corporate Australia is missing out. you know that there, there are some great products that are being built by by young companies in Australia, and there is no reason why corporate Australia shouldn't be you know the the beneficiaries of of that that technology and those innovations first. Sometimes I worry that too many corporate innovation programs are, are almost seen as, as a form of philanthropy or a form of um, you know trying to put something shiny in, in the annual report rather than actually seeing that the underlying benefit that some of these technologies can deliver.
2: Just on that, Kylie, are you actually seeing real innovation from corporate Australia? Or are we actually seeing copying from out of the US and other parts of the world? Now, call a spade a spade because I, I work in this space, there's, there's, a, there's a few out there who've got their own hubs or they've got their own incubator labs. Oh, that's maybe even older terminology now. But from, from your real perspective, are we really investing pure innovation? Because R&D is down as a whole.
1: Look, it, it, it's a big question. And, and there, there are certainly some companies that are doing it better than others from, from a pure corporate ventures perspective, the ones that we have seen perform the best are those that set it up as a distinct business, you know, an entirely separate entity that are driven not just by synergies within the corporate, but by cold, hard financial returns that they are generally, genuinely looking to to find the most innovative companies that happen to have some synergies with, with the existing business. I think for a lot a lot of those um corporate venture and innovation labs sometimes they have overpromised and under delivered on their ability to deliver the corporate as a customer. Yeah. Um I th- I think that is something that, that could be done better. But but it's tricky. Um and in in the US I think, you know, the, the venture arms and the innovation labs over there are not they often are required to integrate as much as 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 the Australian counterparts are, where it's not just financial returns, it's, you know, deliver um, integrations in, into the business. So I think those two things can be tricky to uncouple.
0: And, I mean, if you, if you want me to speak direct as the uh, New Yorker of the bunch, I'm happy to speak a little more directly. There were times where I worked with some big corporates, be it one of the big four banks, one of the big telcos. And I, I do think that there is we, we jokingly call it the sludge wall, which is a wall where internal innovation hits, it's a wall where uh, external, you know, startups looking to sell into corporates hit. I think that if corporations want to move quickly, they have a better chance to either acquire a startup or to use a startup as a vendor than they do to build those capabilities internally and to attract that talent internally. Um, And so if we look at what's happening in the US and the UK, there is such a robust M&A ecosystem where corporates are actively acquiring startups we are hardly seeing that here. We did about 10.9 billion dollars of MA deals last year, but oh, I think ninety percent of that was outside companies buying Australian companies. So first of all, you know, corporate Australia, you're missing out. We're letting these these global companies buy up our talented, um, our talented engineers, our talented product folks, and our incredible businesses where they could have added a lot of value to your company. And so maybe just yeah, just a gentle nudge that corporations might want to think more about using startups as vendors and then having a fit for purpose uh, process to get them into the procurement um, or thinking about acquiring these companies and maybe letting them sit outside
2: for a while. Well, that's what I was going to ask, Rachel, because if they acquire them and they start bringing them in, then that's self-destruction in itself, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it, it is. Um, and we, we see that when m value is destroyed instead of created. It's often when that company is trying to be integrated too quickly. You know, when I was at Eventbrite, we were actually very active in MA. We acquired many companies while I was there. One of the things that startups do really well is to know, know when to integrate and know when to actually just let that company run. I feel like maybe corporates are so quick to want to integrate, they destroy that value a little too quickly because they haven't really thought about How will this company exist and thrive within the bigger belly of the beast?
2: Yeah. And the other challenge, we are the land of oligopoly down here, um, or land of duopoly. But as you say, there's so many other opportunities. And just on those opportunities, do we really understand the ecosystem? Everyone bandies that word around, but there seems to be a lot of untapped opportunity. Are we thinking properly in 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 terms of structuring the opportunity to create the value out of that ecosystem or adjacency sectors and maximize it?
0: yeah i'll pick this up we, we've touched upon a bunch of the pieces of the ecosystem and so while the word can be kind of nebulous it's actually just the accumulation of the things we've talked about it's about mm. r d spend and to answer that question i think we're like one and a half percent of gdp rdd of r d spend i think the us is at about three and a half so it starts with just how much are we investing just in that r d how much are we investing in those early stage companies we've talked about that three dollars versus 25 Um, It's about talent. How are we either home-growing our talent or importing talent? It is about making it attractive for companies to stay onshore. So one of the things our companies do pretty quickly is when it's time for them to uh, raise their next stage of capital, they're looking to U.S. investors and U.S. Mm. investors want Delaware Corp. So right away that PTYLTD becomes a Delaware Corp. And then we have lost that company to the States. And so there's so many things that we as an ecosystem can start to do to make sure that the whole system is working, but also that we're keeping it on shore. One of the things that, I think recently there is a report that looked at, I think it was called the G-E-D-I, it's an index that looks at 16 pillars of entrepreneurship, and we actually spiked really high on all those individual pillars, but what we don't have yet is the whole thing coming together. It's like having all the right ingredients, but then you cook the meal and it doesn't taste good yet. Uh, we're still tweaking our cooking technique. And so all of those elements that we've discussed so far, they all need to come together together with this connective tissue so that it can it can work we're not far off and again it's we have good positive indicators and bright spots in all of those areas so listen we are optimists we invest in australia we believe there's no better place than to be investing in australia because it's early days it's where There's enough volume where we're getting outstanding opportunities, but it's not hyper-competitive. The prices are relatively low compared to other geos. So listen, we are absolutely bullish on early stage and Australia, but it's exciting when we think that it just gets better and better every day.
2: So what what are you hearing about the technology hub being built around Central?
1: It's definitely an ambitious project. So I um, I went on a tour of the precinct last week um, and was part of the the kind of technology roundtable that's that's helping um, you know make sure there's there's sufficient consultation around the project. Yep. It is one of the most. It, it stretches over a massive area, right? You know, so like this. This this is not a tight little three block precinct. It's going yep. to be a hard thing to get. The look and feel, right? How is someone at RPA going to feel connected to Tech Central versus someone that's sitting down, you know, like at, at the the beautiful Quantum Building um, on top of Central Station? So I, I think. It's ambitious, I think they are aware of that. I think they are doing their best to bring the space together digitally, not just physically yep. and I think we have to work with what we have you know like it's all it's all well and good to to kind of put you know best practice town planning principles um, on the table and look for you know for, for, for four city blocks where you could where you could build your your ideal startup uh, start up and scale up hub. But people want to be in Sydney, you know, like if people want to be in the centre of things. We don't want to build this at this point in time in a regional area where we have the luxury of space and, and being able to design as we see want. And I think this is a really thoughtful way to make the best of what we have.
2: So what is the so called secret ingredients or special sauce, or is it the actual leader of the business? The team, you know, you've already mentioned you're looking at big thinkers, i.e. global play as opposed to local play, but what do you actually really look at?
0: Yeah, I think that the earlier we're investing, the more index is put on the founder or the founding team, and that's because one of the things we know in early stage investing is the product or the customer problem I should say, the product that they're bringing to us in first instance is probably not going to be the one that's going to save the world and make us a ton of money. So what instead we're looking for is how good is this team at their ability to understand and articulate the customer problem and understand that very deeply? How good are they at being able to rapidly build and iterate on product? So if we assume the first version they give us isn't going to be the ultimate one what does it say as a proxy for how they think about solution design? And yeah. then we're looking for their learning and, or- and growing orientation because they are going to have to learn and grow multiple times. And the speed at which they're able to look at data, whether that's from their customer, from the market, whether that's from you know, their investors or advisors, how quickly can they gather information, make a change in their offering, measure it, see if they're onto something and then iterate. And so we're looking for these learning loops and learning orientation. Okay. Now, when we zoom out, so then we, we're looking for outstanding founders that have those traits. We're looking for a very real and well understood customer problem that's in a very large and growing market. Yep. Uh, and we're looking for someone who is disproportionately able to realize this opportunity. And that's because they have an insight or a novel technology or deep experience or a deep network because we always say, why this team? Why is this team gonna be the one to do it? The other thing that we just have to ask ourselves is why now, right? What are the trends or the timing where all of a sudden this might not have been viable two years ago, but all of a sudden this is the time. And so we're constantly looking, not just, you know, this. A few of those attributes are internal. We also have to look at some external attributes. What's shifted in customer demand? What's shifted in um, you know, the compliance or regulatory environment? What's shifted in the competitive environment where all of a sudden this becomes a very exciting proposition right now? So those are the things that we look for. It's hard to say at this point how much is art and how much is, is science because we've done so much. Uh, the truth is, is that sometimes we get it wrong. And this is part of how uh you build a large portfolio especially early stage we believe that you need a large portfolio because not every company will be successful and not every company will be wildly successful statistically a handful of our companies will do the returns for all of our investments you know many times over And so we go in with a very high conviction on every single investment, um, but then it's our job to start to look at the data and start to identify who are our breakaway successes and find ways to continue to double down and back those successes going forward.
2: Is there any particular sectors you're spending more time in?
0: Oh look! At, at the moment, we are still
1: really excited by the promise of Web three. Now, Web three is a big, broad term that means different things to different people. We're we're not um, we're not here to, to hype a, a particular uh, NFT project um, or or the promise of of decentralized finance in and of itself, but the technologies that underpin those various different Web3 use cases are really interesting. We think it's too early to really tell how people will be engaging in metaverses, what kind of people, how often. But we know that more people are going to be engaging in metaverses more yeah. of the time, you know, particularly yeah. as as parents of, of kids that, that went through lockdown and, and spent their entire social lives in metaverses, whether it was Roblox or Fortnite or Minecraft, their entire social life has now shifted inside a metaverse already. So playing that forward, it stands to reason that that is going to be more and more important for more people but we don't yet know exactly how or why or how much. So the way that we are thinking about investing in that space at this time is to get in on the ground level with the tooling, with the infrastructure, that whatever the use cases and the applications that sort emerge of on top, what are they going to need to run in the future? So that's that's something that we're particularly exciting about at the moment.
2: It's funny you say that between us, well, um, I guess and everybody here listening, uh, one of our colleagues is a bit of a, a bit of a genius in technology, and we did a video on the metaverse and put it out r- over across all, all of corporate Australia. A lot of people are still struggling to get their head around it. Okay. What what the potential could be? He's also American by background. He also studies uh, the globe inside and out, and he shows the trends to us. And I, I I take a lot. I myself struggle to see where it could go, but my God, when he starts putting the numbers together, and where life is heading. There seems to be a huge potential here. The actual willingness to engage and understand, it was interesting, the, re- the return back was, has been slow, but the stats show that exactly what you just said, that's the way we're going. Why is it pickup up on such a thing which seems to be showing really fascinating trends where the world is going to be playing in the metaverse? Why aren't we moving faster in that in Australia, do you think?
1: I think it's because it's hard to see those winning use cases yet, and I think people people saw that the rise and fall of NFTs. Now, I, I don't want yep. to bag on on NFTs, but yep. you know, people found it very difficult to get their head around how a digital image could cost, you know. Millions of dollars—that just yes. seemed ludicrous to people. Now, yeah. NFT—I believe NFTs will play a role going forward, but perhaps not how we've seen it now. So, I—I okay. I, I think it's trying to decouple some of the early learning experiences that we've had from the broader opportunity and recognizing that it's not going to be one thing for all people. Not everyone is going to spend all their time in a, in a metaverse. Not everyone is going to work and play in a metaverse every day, but some people will
0: for some things.
2: And the philosophy that you both take in regards to investment, so it's not a three, five-year play, what, what, what's the triggers that you look for?
0: Yeah, so first of all, uh, especially because we come in so early, this is a long-term patient Uh, investment. So they say the average timeline is somewhere between seven to 10 years. And all investors in the space should think about the investment as being highly illiquid for that period of time. Now, that said, uh, last year, we had four opportunities because of our structure, because it's different, we had four opportunities to offer individual investors the ability to sell down some of their stake in a company through a secondary. And for some folks who took that up, Not only do they get a great return, but that worked for them because they were ready to pull that capital out, deployed into other uh, opportunities that we had. And so one of the things that we do at Flying Fox is we are looking for ways where we set the expectation, where it's long-term, and we certainly are long-term bullish on our companies, and we are backing them over a long-term horizon. But that doesn't mean that when opportunities arise for some of our individual investors to have early liquidity, because everyone is in different stages and has different needs. If that opportunity arises, you know, then we offer that. And in our case, it was great because those early investors exited out of their position. Other investors within Flying Fox bought that position. And in that instance, everyone wins. People who wanted access to that company come in, people who wanted to cash out had that opportunity. So one of the things that we are looking for is, you know, how do we start to add little moments of liquidity in what is largely assumed to be an illiquid asset class? One of the advantages of our time frame means that in periods of economic uncertainty or macro uh, headwinds, it means that we don't get spooked by what's happening right now. Um, yeah. There are great advantages to be an early stage investor right now. Obviously, prices have come down, the bar for quality yes. has gone up. But for our companies where we need them to have an exit in order for us to have liquidity, given that the exit ecosystem through IPO has all but shut down right now, that doesn't scare us because we have seven years to wait, 10 years to wait. And gosh, if the IPO market still looks this way in seven to 10 years, we have much bigger problems on our hands. And so coming in early, we have the luxury of time to ride out whatever short-term cycles come through macroeconomically. So we still feel, again, very excited about early stage when we started to see the writing on the wall, what was gonna happen from a global macro trend perspective, um, it actually just supported our thesis rather than cause us to scramble and change our strategy. We are the part of the ecosystem that was least impacted by the bubble and valuation craziness of 2021, and therefore we're least impacted by any sort of temporary correction. So our time horizon is working to our advantage if you know, so long as everyone is patient alongside with us.
2: What's the actual size of your, of your funds and currently, and what's, what's, let's say if we rolled the model forward five, 10, 15 years, what would be, what would you be looking at there?
0: Yeah. So in the two years that we've been deploying together, we have, um, around $20 million of assets under management that we've deployed. Mm -hmm. We deploy them to about 45 companies. We've done 50 five or so investments, which means that we've done first checks, but now often doing the second and sometimes even third checks into those companies. Um, if you th- roll forward, we originate at least 10 deals a year. So we're bringing 10 new companies in. Um, often it is more than that. And from a investor perspective, we have about 350, almost 400 investors uh, in the Flying Fox family. And so we are building a pretty sizable community in five Mm. years' time. You can imagine that we will have hundreds of millions of dollars that have been deployed. Our portfolio will be at least 50 companies larger, um, and hopefully we'll be welcoming hundreds of more folks into the Flying Fox family as investors, either because they know it's difficult to do it on their own or because they want access to this asset class and can't do it themselves. Of our investor group... Um, of those hundreds or so that have joined us, many of them, this is the first time they've written a check into this sector. So we are inviting more people into this asset class for the first time, which is really powerful for us.
2: Okay, so just gonna ask you about that. So how do how do the mums and dads of the world know about, you know, we've talked about a little bit, but how do they find out about yourselves and how do they actually go ahead and invest?
0: Well, this is a great way for folks to find out about us. Thanks, Greg, thanks for the platform. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we've been very lucky. Um, in that our model first of all, doesn't require us to do a massive fundraise, which is often a roadshow for months or a year. What happens is once a year, usually just before the financial year starts, we open up our expressions of interest for a few weeks. People uh, express their interest and then we very quickly close the door.
2: Close the fund. That's
0: because we want to get right down to business and start deploying. And so First of all, if you're out of cycle and you're interested, please reach out to us. There are opportunities to do some optional deals before you get into a cohort. Um, We're flyingfox.vc, feel free to reach out.
2: Say that again, you wanna say that again?
0: Flyingfox.vc, come on and uh, reach out through the contact us page. Um, So there are various on-ramps where people can jump in, but if you are interested in a cohort just prior to a financial year is where we invite people in. we do require that you qualify as a sophisticated investor under the Corporations Act because we are making wholesale investments, um, but the amount of capital that's required to get started is way smaller than people think. We have some folks who are putting $250,000 in across the 10 deals, so that would be 25K per deal, all the way down to folks on average are putting you know 50K in, which is 5K across 10 deals. It's really important to us that we have this cohort model, because as I mentioned earlier, we believe that portfolio size helps to de-risk. Yep. If you're doing this for the first time, we don't want you to make one or two investments and then hope that lightning strikes 100 or 50% of the time. We want to give you a, not just 10 deals, but we're caref- carefully curating that portfolio to make sure that you have a good spread across industry, a good spread across stage, because even with the early stage, there's quite a Bit of variation whether it's pre-product pre-revenue and so we're very thoughtful about how we bring those 10 deals together so one of the advantages of flying fox is you come in you can either engage as deeply as you want or you can set it and forget it we will deploy your capital and what you know is that after about a year you come out with at least 10 deals that are highly um, constructed as a portfolio so yeah we invite folks who know absolutely nothing to come in and learn with us. We invite folks who are well-seasoned investors, but love our picking. We think we're pretty good pickers. We also have really good access. I think, you know, Kylie and I have worked really hard to build both the reputation and the relationships so that we get access to juicy deals. Um, So even the well-seasoned investor, hopefully, uh, you know, will find a great advantage in being able to throw some capital our way and know that it's in good hands.
2: Just out of interest, I know there's no guarantees, of the 10 deals, if you just use your, your basic formula, the success is what? Is it two out of 10, three out of 10 which come in? And then when they do come in, the, you know, the returns are very, very significant, I assume. Is that is that roughly what it, what it looks like or am I, am I reading it wrong?
1: Yeah, I mean, no, that, that's pretty close. We model that half will fail.
2: Half now that's, okay.
1: that's, that's, that's a lot. Um, mm. and, and that, we, we think we've probably been too conservative in that because we're a few years in now and, and we're nowhere near half. Um, so that's, that's a good sign. Mm. Uh, we, we do model that, uh, you know, t- t- two to three will, will return the money maybe a little bit more and then one to two will be 10x plus. So at 10x plus is, a conservative estimate of the outliers. This is an outlier investment game. One hundred x returns are not unheard of. thousand x returns, not unheard of. Yep. And that is that is what we are we are looking for.
2: And look, from the flips to the other side, uh, I've got a small business, or I've got a big dream. How do you find out about me? Or how do I, is it is it you coming to me, or me coming to you?
0: Well, we get our deal flow from a number of places. Uh, We find that our best sources of referrals come directly from our founders themselves. And that also works to our advantage of having a big portfolio. We have over 100 founders in the Flying Fox family and uh, founders refer founders to great investors. They all talk uh, and luckily our founders um, think pretty highly of us. So we love when founders introduce us to other great founders and founders talk and they know each other and they know who's building what. So that's a great source of of deal flow for us the second source of deal flow is through other funds so we are different in that we are a co-investor and we are co-investor by design what that means is that all of the funds in australia and a handful globally don't see us as competitive they see us as complementary and in fact uh you know we do deals with the big funds all the time we have over 25 co-investors and they will You know, they have the full capacity, say, to write a three million dollar check and take the whole round. But instead they'll say, hey, why don't we write two and a half million flying Fox? Why don't you take the Delta? We want you on this cap table. And so we love when other investors bring us great deals, either as a co-investment or they might say this isn't right for us. It's too early. But we know that, you know, this fits your thesis and they know that. We'll be working pretty hard on behalf of that company for 18 months. Uh, So, when they get another sniff at it, they'll be at the stage that's ready for their fund. So, that is a great source of deal flow from our founders, from our co investors, and then from our investors. I mentioned that we have, you know, 350 to 400 investors. Um, Folks are bringing us companies all the time. Now, of course, there's always other ways. So, we're we're out there all the time we're at pitch contests we're at industry events we're Mm -hmm. always keeping an eye out for um, hidden talent that's hiding in the corners we love that and likewise people can come in and contact us through our website Um, we are always available uh, for to be hit up with a cold call we don't always see the best yield from that channel but we certainly review every single inbound that comes our way
2: Okay. And just out of interest, this our podcast is a leadership podcast and obviously you're going to be looking at that entrepreneur, the team they formed around themselves. What sort of the qualities do you look for? And you know, is it absolute passion to customer? I know you talked about the big picture. Is there anything else that you look you know, often they're putting the house on the line or they've gone to everybody close family to raise the initial amount? I mean, it's it's make or break for a lot of these people, isn't it? There's no there's no return on a lot of these opportunities. What do you actually, when you come, you know, finally say? Right, I've got the fund behind me. This is one organization I am going to invest in. Uh, I do see potential. H- how do you sort of deduce do, do you your answer?
0: Yeah, I think that um, you mentioned customer obsession and that understanding and articulation of the customer problem really is paramount, and it's ta- like it. That's where the conversation can begin and end for us. If they're not able to deeply understand that customer problem then i don't think that they'll be able to navigate the bumps in the road and figure out what the right product or service is because they don't know what the why is i always say that i need founders to be a magnet and they need to be a magnet for three things they need to be a magnet for customers they need to be a magnet for talent and they need to be a magnet in our world for more capital so i'm also looking for their ability to not just articulate the customer problem because that's going to drive a beautiful product but articulate the customer problem because that's going to create a vision that is compelling for customers to want to buy from them for great talent to want to join their team and for capital much bigger than ours to continue to um, to fund their growth so i always think about that magnet analogy and one of the things we know is that if you have really happy customers you attract really great talented people who create more happy customers who can attract more talent. So there's a beautiful, beautiful, virtuous cycle that happens between great, you know, attracting great customers and attracting great talent and what can come of that. The one thing I just want to pick up on, Greg, is you mentioned, that so many of these entrepreneurs are putting everything on the line in order to build these businesses. And that's something that Kylie and I acknowledge and wanted to both reward but also to mitigate the inherent risk that comes from putting it on the line and Mm. we're asking them to put it on the line for our firm you know for our returns and we know statistically so many of them will not result uh, in something meaningful and so one of the things that we've done is we've dedicated five percent of our carry to our founders which means that every time one of our companies has a successful exit and that's when kylie and i get paid each and every founder in our portfolio gets a piece of that action. And, you know, we hope that that is helping them to, you know, just not have all their eggs in one basket. It's giving them access to this asset class. If we believe that this asset class is going to drive material wealth, Yep. And why aren't we giving our founders the most important people in our lives? Why aren't we giving them access to this asset class as well? So that was a decision that we made that we're really proud of. And our founders are really excited. And it's our hope that, you know, right now it's early. We aren't hitting those exits quite yet. But when we do, that money will start to be meaningful and it'll feel good for us if we're helping our founders, you know, buy their first house or, you know, pay for their kids school fees while they are continuing to build their businesses
2: a bit of advice from you if someone's out there as a founder they're going to be listening to this i'm sure uh, and they read all that management 101 books which says surround yourself by the very best people right classic everyone does it when you got no money or very little money very hard to follow that principle come and work with me i've got nothing on the table to show i've got a dream to share Based on your experience locally and internationally, how do they do it? You know, the banks, the four pillar banks, they can, and the other big corporates in Australia, they've got checkbooks galore. They can sign for they can sign to the best the best people in the country. But you read these books and you're busting your backside, and it's one a.m. in the morning. And you're reading these books. Yeah, common says says that, but yeah, how am I going to get them?
0: Well, you know, Greg, I took a seventy percent uh, pay haircut when I jumped from Bain to Eventbrite. Now that has paid itself back in spades through the equity that uh, i got as an early employee and was able to realize on exit so uh, there is a part of um, finding others who Uh, have the ability and I realize that that's a privilege that I had the ability to trade off short-term cash for long-term reward but finding those who believe in your vision and that just goes back to my comment around being a magnet and being able to sell the long-term dream you want folks especially in those early days who are going to be in the trenches with you this work is not easy and the only way that folks can stay um, focused and engaged is that they deeply deeply believe in what is being built and why the world will be different on behalf of your customer when you've achieved that. And then there is you know, ideally a pot of gold that's attached to it. Uh, it doesn't always happen, but in my case, that certainly played out for me.
2: So offering equity is a big pot?
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's very important. So ESOP, which is an employee share option program, most of the companies that we invest in either have that ESOP set up or that's part of what we do with them is help them to set that up. Uh, and that's a major way to attract talent um, because they get to act like owners because they are owners. They get to have a piece of the business. Now, we won't go too far down in the rabbit hole around how tax treatment of ESOP can be improved to yep. make that a more attractive proposition. Uh, but we, we know that it's a very important lever for those who um, don't have as much cash on hand, um, but have a very big vision and they're operating in a very big opportunity. Talent can come in for that long-term gain.
1: We're just starting to
0: see how
1: the Australian sector is starting to value the ESOP as well. When, when we started investing in this space, it was very hard to attract talent with ESOP. They wanted the salary, yeah. um, even technical talent. In the US, everyone that wants to work in startups is trying to optimize for equity. Here, that is just starting to change. And that's going to make it a lot easier for, for these early stage companies to find the right people.
0: One of the important things that the U.S. has a head start on is that there is a secondary market for early employees to sell some of their shares. Because right okay. now, those employee shares are only liquid if there is a secondary or an exit. Um, yes. so some early employees are sitting on millions and millions of dollars of money on paper, but can't get a home loan yet. Um, And so there are secondary marketplaces in the US that have popped up here in the in Australia, there are some secondary funds who can buy out that position Canva starting last year had started um, what hopefully should be an annual sale of secondary shares of their employees, so they can get some of that early liquidity. Canva shares from when I was helping them out with that project were up 56x. And so having opportunities for small amounts, usually it's under 20% for employees to exit, just helps them to realize that burden in the hand. And then ideally yes. they put that money back into the ecosystem as angel investors. So that will help that flywheel to start spinning as well.
2: And as part of Flying Fox Ventures, outside of support and sense of um, funds, et cetera, do you bring in specialists or guidance and anything over the above? If I'm running a business, I really, or do you put me, do you plug me into somebody else's that you've invested in so I could pick up some ideas? Is there a community as a whole as well?
1: There's a lot of different ways in, in which we help. And, and the size of our community means that there are lots of different people to tap for different skills. Yes, Ra- Rachel and I ha- have a few tricks uh, and we, we pull those out when, when when they're needed. And some of those tricks are helpfully um, on, on high rotation, things like product strategy, financing, legals, conflict resolution. Those are the things that we, we tend to do ourselves. But we have, you know, a network of Um, almost 500 investors you know they they have deep subject matter expertise we leverage some of those to help grow the portfolio companies but also sometimes to help us when we're trying to get our heads around a new sector or, or digging in with some some of the technical due diligence aspects one of the things that founders constantly say not just at flying fox but 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 most um most venture venture founded startups find the value from other founders to be disproportionate. So we are always looking at ways, not just to bring in the most helpful person, whether it's you know, whether it's one of our investors or, or someone externally. But how can we connect them to each other? And, and coming back to our carry share initiative, we've yes. found that aligning the incentives there to be really powerful because they want to help each other. They want to receive help from each other. And now those incentives are actually aligned to try and build build strength around that capability.
2: I, um, I had an interesting moment a number of years back. It was during the GFC. I went and saw a head of HR, of a global investment bank, one of the most well-known. And that person shared with me they were getting a number of resignations. Market had turned. It was going to be a slowdown for some period of time. And the dominant gender was females who were calling it a day. Didn't want to do it anymore. And I said, well, what are they going to do? And then the, the outcome of that was they're going to go and set up their own businesses. Now, I don't know how true that was. I'm going back a number of years now and saying this what do you see in, in terms of appetite? Is it males, females? Who are the ones out there prepared to back themselves? And is it harder for each? I mean, welcome your thoughts on on this.
0: Yeah. I First of all, um, I would love to see more women starting businesses and I would love to see women starting businesses that are VC scale. And uh, hopefully any woman out there building a great business, please come talk to us. One of the things that we saw is steadily leading into COVID, the number of women at the top of our funnel was growing. And then it actually jumped down off a cliff during COVID. We yeah. saw fewer founders coming in um, that were women. It used to be like pretty close to you know 50-50. Right now 30% of our portfolio companies have a female founder. And I would say if we looked at those stats a you know a year or 18 months ago, it was closer to 50. So our stats have actually gone in the wrong direction. And mm-hmm. that is because during COVID, women, I think were disproportionately saddled with the responsibilities that COVID presented with homeschooling and yes. childcare and all of those things. So it's our hope now with kids back in school, um, that we'll see more female uh, founders claw their way back into um, in, into being there because actually all of the data shows that they build more valuable businesses with better returns. And gosh, like we certainly want to see them. I saw a stat recently that, you know, I think it's in the single digits percent of venture capital funding goes to teams with female founders. And so I think that there is just a ton of, well, there's the top of the funnel problem that I just described, but we just know that there is bias and structural barriers built into the system. We certainly hope that, more women will come to us because that that's an unfair advantage I think that we have and we're not afraid to exploit that. Uh, but right now, looking at the distribution of venture capital into uh, female-founded teams is abysmal. And it's not just abysmal from an equality perspective, but it's abysmal because, uh, like I said, it's antithetical to good returns profile.
2: So you said the, the um, inherent built-in bias. Is that because I'm in a I'm suggesting that uh, somewhere along the line you're going to take time out and have a number of children and therefore you're not going to give the, the business the dedication warrants. Is that, is that is that where I'm coming from in that regard? Is it, is it as simple as that?
1: I don't think so. I, I think okay. it's much more nuanced than that. I, okay. I think one of the things we are good at in investing is pattern matching. And when you have had success with a certain kind of founder, you are predisposition to think that that is how all successful founders must look. And it's it's tough to, to overcome these unconscious biases right like mm. th- that's that's why they're unconscious um, I, I think you know being be, being aware that they exist, calling them out recognizing that you know that, that they you know that there are benefits in overcoming them that it's not just a nice thing to do there are real financial drivers for getting this stuff right is is an important part of the puzzle.
0: I think the other thing I'll add is that um, I think, one of the biases that has crippled this space is you have a female founder who deeply understands a customer problem that the investor can't get his head around because that's not something that he directly feels but is a huge opportunity in a large and growing global market you know whether that is in breast milk whether that is in you know, one of our favorite founders, Alice has a company called Ovira, not in our portfolio, but that is a device that uh, eliminates pain from your menstrual cycle or endometriosis. That yep. is a multi, multi, multi million dollar revenue business. And I feel like that's something that, um, you know, typical investors might not be able to identify. If you zoom out also and you just think in the consumer space, women tend to be decision makers uh, in consumer decisions. Yeah women entrepreneurs understand that and maybe male investors don't. And so sometimes we have seen some male investors say, I don't think that's really a thing or that's not a problem. And it's just because that hasn't been a thing or a problem in his life. And so there are some great opportunities that are missed um, just because someone can't understand the TAM without a directly experienced problem.
2: And have you both found it? Two females establishing a fund? Breaking into a you know a tough market, I'll be, I'll be interested in your thoughts.
1: I, personally, my my background was um, in you know w- when I was lawyering, most of my clients were in the resources sector, so I, I am well used to being being the only woman in in most rooms. So so I haven't found it that tough. I have been surprised by how few female capital allocators there are, not just within venture but in other parts of the capital stack. Yeah, and I think that that is that is something that needs to be overcome to, you know, rid ourselves of these systemic biases because we, we, we need more people who come from different backgrounds to to get that job done. But but you know, personally I haven't felt any you know I, I haven't felt anything f- f- from the incumbents in the space that there has been nothing less than you know being welcomed with open arms and gender hasn't really played played a role if i'm honest
0: i the one thing i'll, I'll add is we are seeing more women pop into the space which is good um they're not yet as kylie said um directly responsible for the allocation of capital um Mm -hmm. so it will be good to see in the next few years as those folks develop up and kind of take some of the reins um it'll it'll be good to see them in that role um i also coming from a management consulting background um and raised with three brothers i'm used to uh holding my own I, i i do want to acknowledge even though kylie you know has said and and we haven't felt any direct bias um we're tough as nails like we are really tough cookies and so i don't want to assume that our experience has been the same for all women in this space i know that many women have found it very challenging and it's not because we're better it's because we are well used to operating in this space so i want to acknowledge that there's probably still room for the industry and the environment to change to uh, make it an exciting prop career proposition for more women because we certainly need them. Maybe we'll soften as we get older, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what are you both seeing in terms of local and international economy?
1: Ooh, next question, please. Yeah, it's scary, yeah. isn't
2: it? Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it?
0: <laughs> Listen, I mean, I, I think, you know, much ink has been spilled on this, so I won't pretend to be, uh, you know, a great economist, but obviously interest rates continue to rise, inflation continues to rise. We obviously saw a very big correction in the public markets in the markdown of tech stocks. And because of that, we saw a lot of companies that were in the IPO pocket, not go ahead in IPO. And in some instances, there is a welcome correction there, right? Like the market-
2: On the valuations.
0: Yeah, the market was really yeah. overheated in 2021. I can tell yeah. you the fervor with which Not only did we deploy capital, and I think that Kylie and I really um, held ourselves and each other accountable to make good decisions in spite of the frenzy around us, but just the speed in which we had to operate was actually quite exhausting. So I feel like we still kept a very high decision-making bar and process in place, but we did it with such fervor that we needed a very long vacation come December. But I think that there is a bit of a correction that's happening this year that will allow us all at all stages to be a little bit more methodical about our decision making. We like I mentioned earlier, we are holding the bar higher. So there's plenty of money. We have plenty of money and other firms have plenty of money. There's dry powder for great companies, but great. The definition of great, the bar has changed and that's right now only working to our advantage. It means that we're going to get founders who deeply understand business fundamentals, they understand their unit economics. They Under they have a strategy around go to market they have a strategy around their monetization and their business model and so we get to have conversations that are rooted in real things like the profitability equation or looking at their cac versus their ltv and yep. uh, i appreciate that we're able to talk about um fundamentals that are within our control rather than you know we're still obviously thinking really big and we're thinking how big can this opportunity be and we're looking for big global crazy crazy things to back but having a deeper understanding of the underlying pillars of the business and the levers you can pull to make money i think has been a welcome change so if we zoom out to the macro i feel like everyone having these conversations is good around capital efficiency around business fundamentals and like i had said given that we're so early all of the stuff that's happening on the macro side impacts us far less. And in the last two years, we saw tons of funds spinning up these seed specific vehicles. So there's plenty of cash waiting for our companies as long as they hit their milestones.
2: Are you going to remain early investors? Is that the model long-term? Nothing's going to change?
0: Yeah. We believe that outsized returns come from being that first money in. Now, one of the things that we know in our industry is that when you can when you have asymmetric information ie you know who's growing really quickly you yeah. know where the business is going then you want to keep backing those winners and throwing more money down on them mm-hmm. so uh, as we evolve i imagine we'll have more mechanisms to be able to continue to back our winners but we have no intention of leaving the early stage something t- sometimes what we see in our industry is that other firms are raising bigger and bigger funds. It's really hard to deploy hundreds of millions of dollars, 500K at a time. And so they end up moving up the stack into later stage. We yes. truly believe that the value opportunity is in this super early stage. And so structurally, whatever we build needs to be aligned to our ability to play there and to win there and deploy capital responsibly
2: there. Okay. How's the first year really gone? Is it gone above expectations?
0: Absolutely.
1: I mean, we, we we had to navigate a, a pan- pandemic, a couple of lockdowns, and you know a, a financial meltdown. So if we can um if we can withstand this, I think we can withstand anything. It's been one of the things we are always testing for when we're speaking. With founders is their relationship with each other. One of the most common reasons why an early stage business will fail is because the co-founders fall out or they want different things.
2: I was going to ask you both the same. You still talk to each other then, when yeah. you're in?
1: Yeah, it is. Well, we we, we we did we did have a stealth period, so it's it's one year publicly, but we we did we did spend some time together yep. working together under different brands just to really test our relationship because okay. we, we we didn't want to fail. You know, we 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 didn't want this business to not work because we couldn't figure out how to fight fair with each other. And this is a business that requires you to have contrary views. You know, Rachel and I argue over nearly everything. You know, we, we have to push each other's boundaries. And figuring out a way to do that in a respectful way was, was fun. Um, we've, we've got a whole different variety of ways to fight now, um, nearly all of them constructive. And it's been, it's been, yeah, really fantastic to to find someone who who I can see myself working with for the next twenty or thirty years.
2: That's a nice compliment there, Rachel.
0: Yeah, thank you. I mean, we know that um, you know, co-founders, whether it be of startups or of funds, statistically they need to outlast the average Australian marriage. So it is important that we have the elements of a strong relationship, including the ability to to fight fair, to be constructive i was in sydney uh, spending time with kylie just last week and uh, we were reacting to something very intellectually and i kind of stopped and i was like but how do you feel and i was like this could be you know me and my partner sitting down around the dinner table joking aside it is very important that we ourselves uh, have the right ingredients to be good co-founders complementary skill sets and ability to push each other whenever we are in violent agreement we will force one another to take the opposite side and kind of play out you know a contrarian view because we don't want to get stuck into groupthink even though we can speak to you know telepathically we don't want to make decisions that way likewise with our founders we look for indicators of when they've had bumps in the road we look for you know how long have you known each other and what in the duration of that relationship has Put you know put some pressure test on on it, um, and so we love founders that have been in the trenches together. Not just when, not just in 2021 when the money was flowing like milk and honey and uh, everything was easy, but what does it look like when all of a sudden it's 2022 and things look very differently? So uh, I actually had learned quite a bit of interview uh, skills at my time in Amazon, and Kylie and I use that probably without our founders knowing that we are testing the the strength of that relationship quite a bit.
2: I was going to ask you, what, what did you learn about yourselves in the last couple of years then?
0: That's a big question. Um, I'll go first.
1: You go first while yeah. I have my thinking face on.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I think first and foremost, I learned that I absolutely love my job. So I've been very lucky to have amazing jobs in my career. But uh, what a privilege it is to wake up every day find people who are spending their life doing what they believe is their life's work and giving them the enablers whether it's capital advice uh network to be able to do that like what a job um and then on the other side of the coin what a opportunity to be able to find people who want to put their hard-earned capital to work to ideally create a wealth differential for many generations to come like What a job. So I've learned that I absolutely love this. I learned that I would only do this if I had a formidable partner, formidable team, and I'm so lucky to have that in Kylie. And we have another woman, Jera, on our team, and we're in an interview process now to expand the team. Um, And so getting to work with the absolute best in class is also something that has always been important in my career, but if you wanna be elite at what we are doing, then having an elite team I think has been Really um, critical to that. I've also learned there's an opportunity, even though the feedback loops are somewhat long and though we don't know what will happen in 10 years, because we are investing in such a high frequency way, we are learning each time. What was it about my decision making or our decision making process that we can improve for next time? Where were we overly indexing on X and we missed Z? Um, And so again with having written 57 checks now uh there is a lot that we have learned about our lens and how we assess value how we make great decisions how we communicate those decisions to our stakeholders be it our investors or our founders and so all of those skills are just continuing to be honed very rapidly in very uh quick feedback loops we don't know which ones they, what they say is that in an, a typical portfolio, you o- almost always are able to hit the multiple that you're expecting, but the actual companies that do the work, people, investors often pick the wrong one. So like right now mm-hmm. we, we have some favorite children. We're not going to say them on air, Greg. Don't ask us.
2: <laughs> no, I was going to actually, Like, okay, You cut me to the <laughs> chase. You're we right.
0: have a few companies that we think <laughs> are going to be our outliers. Um, but you know, between now and a decade you might prove to be wrong. But I think that we will have made the right portfolio selection that enables those outsized returns to be present.
1: That was a great answer, Rachel. I'm glad I let you go first. <laughs> I, I, I think for me, I learned how to listen. And that's going to make me sound like a megalomaniac that was not good at listening previously. But I was an advisor, you know, it was always my job to talk and to be decisive. And in this job, I have had to really focus on coming at every conversation with a deep humility because no matter, you know, even if it's a company that we're not going to invest in, there is something to learn and this is someone's life's work. Mm-hmm. So making sure that I am, I am being respectful, making sure that not only am I, you know, am, am I giving that person a good experience in the conversation, but that I'm also getting something from it. And, and the way to do that has been by listening and questioning rather than, talking and advising and that's been that's been a really delightful shift for me.
2: Any advice you want to pass on to those contemplating to start up on that dream they just had a couple of days ago?
0: So, just do it. Yeah, I mean I, I say <laughs> Make that like Mike. I always say there's never been a better time to start a startup and every day that's more and more true. Throw yourself in by getting as close to the customer problem as possible and do think about what is the smallest experiment that you can run that starts to prove out that there is a customer pain point and that you've nailed it. Then what is the smallest experiment you can run that you've come up with a potential solution that is something that people are willing to use, pay for and prefer? Then what is the smallest experiment? right? So just chunk everything down. And so it's a little bit of a hell yeah, get started. But how do you break things down so that you are learning these critical little data nuggets that you can build on that tells you you're onto something? I get so disheartened when someone comes to me and they're like, look, we spent five hundred thousand dollars and we had this product built and we spent, you know, ten thousand dollars on this branding and this logo. And I was like, and what have you learned? And they're like, our customers. It's not solving a problem. And you're like, oh, like you probably could have figured that out by running some experiments before you went ahead and built the product. People fall in love with solutions and they need to become obsessed with the problem um, and, in fact, be very... you know loose with their solution when someone comes to me and they say i I have a trick question that i'm going to confess here where i say like tell me what what your product looks like in two to three years if they tell me and they in fact have a slide with a product roadmap of two to three years i just know that they're not learners and they're not listening to customers if they say we have a very strong product vision or we have a strong vision of how we want the world to be And we don't know exactly what the product will look like between A and B, but this is how we have these customer feedback loops. Like that is very attractive. So if you tell me how will the world be different, that's cool. If you tell me what will your product be, I uh, don't actually believe that you're going to be building something your customers want. You're building something that you want to be seen in the
2: world. Okay. Let me just throw, I like all what you just said, Um, something to throw back at you. Mm. Do customers really know what they want?
0: Oh, because
2: uh, Mr. Mr. Steve Jobs created certain stuff that customers never dreamed of.
0: Yeah, so we always say uh, the old adage It's a misappropriated Ford quote, Henry Ford quote that says, if I had asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. So when I talk about this, you actually never listen to your customers. You have to hear your customers. So when your customer says, I want a faster horse, what she's saying is I need to get from point A to point B faster than this current solution. And so your job as product is, I always say customers are liars. It's your job to be the product designer. So you need to understand what are they actually asking for? What is the pain point? So when they say fast, why? Why is it important for them to point A to point B? Maybe because someone is dying, in which case you don't just need a faster horse, you can put medical services on this horse, i.e. an ambulance, right? So when you understand, you ask yourself, they call it the five whys, and you peel back what your customer is saying, you can get to the crux of the problem, and then, you can design a great solution. So never listen to your customers, but you have to always hear them and then you have to translate. You Don't get me started. I have a whole hour talk on this, Greg, but that's my, uh, that's my proprietary IP. Not sharing that today.
2: Yeah, but that's the make or break, isn't it? It
0: is, absolutely. Uh, and this is what we look for. Because I'm obsessed with this, I probably disproportionately look for it uh, in founders, um, but I personally believe this is what will make a great product company or a shitty one so in the steve jobs example no one asked Mm. for an ipod but they asked to have all of those records or all of those cds they wanted more music in their lives and they liked bringing that music with them so steve jobs came up with the product but the pain point was very known which is i love music how do i make it part of my life
2: okay two last questions What's the average day look like for you two? For all those out there listening and being engaged with this conversation, when you get out of bed in the morning, what does this type of role entail?
1: Well, a good day for me starts with tennis. It doesn't happen as often as I would like, but, you know, mental and physical health is very important to us and, and the founders that we want to invest in. We would spend probably, I speak to one to two new founders a day. I probably speak to three to four of our portfolio companies every day. And then the rest of my time would be spent on, you know, talking to investors, internal initiatives, um, talking to great people on podcasts.
0: (laughs) The thing that I would add is, um, you know, Kylie and I and Jarrah, we are a small but mighty team. So most Firms that have deployed the amount of capital that we have have teams of, you know, 10 to 15 people at this point, we've chosen Mm -hmm. to be small and mighty. And a lot of what enables our work is uh, that we've invested in tooling that allows us to work asynchronously. Piley's in Sydney. I'm in Melbourne. We have invest like we have built some of our own tooling. So, for example, our investors can self-service all of the uh, info about their investments. They can at any point look at our deal flow dashboard. So they never have to say, hey, I wonder what's up in Flying Foxland. They can self-service that. And we also think that's important for learning and transparency. And we uh, use tools to be more efficient because we're meeting, like I said, thousands of companies a year. So we have a very robust CRM. We take and share notes. And uh, just this morning before the podcast, we had our weekly deal flow meeting where we discuss and debate and arm wrestle over the companies we've met that week. Big plus on on tooling, another reason why uh, startups are great, we use many of them to enable our business and allow us to be extremely efficient and capital efficient uh, in and of ourselves. We also, most of our
1: meetings still take place on Zoom. So even though, you know, r- real life meetings have come back and occasionally yes. we will, we will, um, you know, put, put, put on, put on proper clothes and, and head into, to Surrey Hills or the city and, and meet people in real life. We have kept up most of our meetings on Zoom because it enables us to get through a higher turnover. It enables us to speak to more companies. And we found that it actually helped us overcome some of our own biases, because when we're looking for these traits in founders, sometimes it can be easy to confuse them for likability. And it's much harder mm. to become a, to come across as likable on Zoom. We're all a bit robotic. None of yep. us are, you know, our best, most charming selves. So we're actually listening for the underlying traits that are going to be important and less pulled off by those um, by those things that are are so much more prevalent when you're meeting in real life.
0: Sometimes, you know, with the founder's permission, we press record on those um, calls and share it with each other. Right. So if I've had a great uh, first few meetings um, with a founder and Kylie's not able to join, we record it. Kylie can then watch that at, at her leisure and hear, you know, from the founder's mouth, how she or he talks about something which is much more valuable than my, you know, crappy secondhand notes. (laughs) <laughs> we're also saving about you know thirty dollars a day in coffees, buying for ourselves and founders. So uh, yeah, we're happy to utilize technology to do more of what we love.
2: Fair enough. Now, Kylie and Rachel, if I was going to say, if you were to look back at your younger selves, starting your career as a consultant and strategy, or as a young lawyer, what advice would you give you give both yourselves now?
1: I would say, don't be afraid of your ten thousand hours and that the grunt work and the the grind that you have to put in at your early career sometimes will be rewarded i think there can be sometimes too much emphasis put on being a generalist and some young people today want to be a, you know a, a generalist too early before they have their deep specialization having a specialization gives you flexibility and a solid kind of grounding point it also gives you this hyper awareness of the superficiality of your knowledge in other areas you know I know I am great at M&A law you know I now have a much broader remit but I know that out there there is someone who knows as much about product strategy or customer obsession as I know about M&A and th- that knowledge and understanding and, and again humility only comes when you put the grunt work in yourself even though at times particularly as a Baby lawyer, that grunt work is overwhelming and hideous. Good luck to all you baby lawyers out there. <laughs>
0: uh, first of all, I have lots of younger folks come up to me and ask about you know long term career planning, and I just say, hey, you're talking to the wrong person. I think trying to long-term career plan in this day and age, when we one don't know what jobs will exist, we don't even know what temperature the earth is going to be. I feel like we should really think about, you know, in the shorter term, just how do you want to be in this world? What kind of learning do you want to experience? Who do you want to work with? And what kind of impact do you want to have on customers, businesses, um, and other? And so uh, if we take a shorter term view on things, then it's, don't be afraid to say yes to some weird and wonderful things like i spent time working in a refugee camp uh between stanford and, and business school um i can't tell you how many lessons i learned there that can be extrapolated to you know what i do now and likewise the reason why you can say yes is because most decisions are two-way doors right jeff bezos talks about the one-way d- door and the two-way doors one-way doors you walk through and it's really bloody hard walk out you kind of can't Um, but actually most decisions are two-way doors they might have a little cost involved usually that cost is a lot less than you think it's usually up in your head so if something truly is a two-way decision just have a crack if it feels right and uh, you never know where it'll take you you never know where you where you will learn so yeah good luck to everyone and um you know Have a crack at a company. Come and talk to us if you're looking for some capital. Uh, Have a crack at joining an early stage company. We talk a lot about founders, but founders need tens and 20 and hundreds of people to join their little armies uh, in trying to change the world. So um, can't wait to see all of you, whether that's us on your cap table or working for some of the great companies that we're backing.
2: Well, on that, what a great way to finish. Kylie and Rachel, thank you very much for your time today.
0: Thanks so much, Greg. Thanks so much.